The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the first Doctor story, Galaxy 4. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? Folks, be sure to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on Facebook, where we're at facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who. You can retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and we love to hear from you wherever you find us on social media. There's another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy called The Catholics of Oz. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Oz, O-Z. So we're talking about this first Doctor story the uh, called Galaxy 4. And Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens? This week, the first Doctor, Stephen and Vicky, land on an unknown, uninhabited planet in the apparent future. The uninhabited planet has recently suffered two crashes from spaceships. One was from the Draven race, which is female-dominated, and one is from the Rills, an ammonia-breathing non-humanoid race that can't go out in an oxygen atmosphere, so they use Roomba vacuum-cleaning robots that Vicky calls Chumblies as drones. But there's a problem, because the planet is going to explode in a couple of days, and the Draven spaceship doesn't work, so the Dravens can't leave. The Rills are repairing their own spaceship, and they have offered to take the Dravens with them. But the warlike Dravins want to kill the Rills and take their spaceship. The Dravins try to use the Doctor, Stephen, and Vicky as pawns to achieve their murderous goals, but the Doctor ends up using the TARDIS to give the Rills' ship uh, the power to take off. He jumpstarts it, and he leaves the Dravins stranded on the planet so that they die when it explodes. The end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's start with just our first impressions. Uh, uh, Father Corey, what's your first impression of this one? It was it was a kind of an interesting one. Um, there's there's a lot of the back and forth, you know. Unfortunately, the classic who because they have so much time to fill, they like to do the back and forth between the two locations or three locations. But I thought it was I thought it was interestingly done. Um, the idea of the the Dravins being female dominated, but then their soldiers are basically um, cloned or genetically created or robots or whatever they're supposed to be. I don't know if it was it was clear Clones, to me what they were or at was least that? test tube babies. Yeah, right. So, I mean, that was kind of an interesting idea. And then, of course, you got the Rills where these were non-humanoid uh, aliens. And so I, I thought it was a enjoyable, enjoyable episode. And, and this is one that has been recreated in animation. And, and I, the animation was okay. I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of the animation in general that they've been doing with Doctor Who, but this one wasn't too bad. Jimmy? Yeah, I agree. I watched the animated version. Specifically, I watched the color animated version because they came out with both a color and a black and white version and the color one was very colorful um Mm -hmm. and we can talk more about the animation but it was a nice straightforward simple plot um it had a lot of visual storytelling one of the things that was true of the animation they did for this one is that it was relatively untethered in that they didn't have telesnaps 
to work mm-hmm. from. So they there were a few production stills that they could use as references for, okay, this is what a Draven looks like. But they they didn't have scene-by-scene, moment-by-moment guides for what they were doing. So they had to re-visualize what was happening. And they did it very impressively. There, I noted multiple instances where there was just a little noise on the soundtrack. And the soundtracks were recorded by fans at home on aud- primitive mm-hmm. audio recorders. Um, but there would be a little sound on the soundtrack and they would come up with an image that represented that you know so like i if you hear this kind of grunt oh steven is moving at this moment um and so they in in their untetheredness from a visual set of references they were able to come up with some very interesting visuals these like the sky on the planet was this red sky with all of these stars and three suns and it was Mm -hmm. it was you know dramatic to look at but they also were able to bring a sense of scale that wouldn't have been there in the original show like in episode four there's a scene where the dravins are shooting at the chumleys down in a canyon Mm -hmm. and this is like they never had that much space on a bbc soundstage so this is a much more long distance dramatic presentation of uh of this firefight and it was it was well done i enjoyed it it was a like i said simple straightforward mm-hmm. plot and interestingly i read that the actors really hated this script and i'm not sure why because i enjoyed the story mm-hmm. i certainly enjoyed it more than some stories um the apparently William Hartnell's reaction to the script was so negative that they threatened to fire him, which they didn't. Mm-hmm. But um, the actress who plays Vicky, her uh, Maureen O'Brien, her reaction to the script was so negative they actually did fire her. They let her go. The next story, The Myth Makers, is her last story. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was an enjoyable story. It's interesting. Uh, I heard that Stephen Purvis's, uh, P- sorry, Peter Purvis's, who plays Stephen, his complaint was that the story was originally written for Vicky, Barbara, and Ian, and Stephen got all of Barbara's lines, which he felt like feminized his responses <laughs> to a lot of things, which I was watching it with that eye, and you know, I toured hmm. that, and I didn't really notice that, but. Yeah, I didn't either. It would have been fascinating to see Barbara trapped in an airlock, but. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah with the gun but uh what one thing we should probably discuss is the um the gender of the dravans because they're all female and that was not the case in the original script in the original script they were male characters and you know people could look at this oh we've got this warlike feminine race is this some kind of 1960s male chauvinism you know, that's, is this some kind of negative comment about women or the battle, so-called battle of the sexes or things like that? And actually, in the original script, the Dravins were men, and it was Verity Lambert, the female producer mm-hmm. of Doctor Who, who changed them to women. And I think that's fine. You know, it's just another way of showing they're not humans. They're aliens. They have this unusual culture. They're very warlike. They're also female-dominated, so they're like Amazons. Mm. And um, their culture is pretty creepy. They have an elite that is 
normally born, and then they have a slave class uh, that is they they're described as created in test tubes. They look like clones in the video version, mm-hmm. but if you look at the production stills from the original broadcast version, it's clear that the dro- the the slave dravins are not all copies of each other. They're they're played by three different women who are not triplets. And so it looks like they're really test tube babies. But they the test tube babies have limited intelligence that's deliberately limited to make them compliant. And so it's kind of like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, where you have different grades of human beings. But the uh the the elite class to which the leader MAGA belongs is normal born they get to eat what for them is normal food even though for us it's just leaves and um they are all female there are very few males in draven society the they have a few males to service the elite class as, for breeding purposes but other than that they kill all the males because they just consume resources so Wow, this is a very creepy culture. And I kind of admire Verity Lambert saying there's no reason these people can't be female. Let's make them female. Because normally you would expect the opposite, and this makes it different. Mm-hmm. It brings to mind a, a first generation, a first season of Star Trek Next Generation episode, which is widely regarded as one of the worst in the series. The the episode is called Code of Honor. Mm. I forget what production number it was. It's like the third episode, maybe fourth, of Next Generation. And they go to this planet that is all black people. Mm-hmm. And and I and 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 I don't mind the fact that they're all black people because I've seen plenty of planets where it's all white people. I, there can be a planet where it's all black people or all Asian people or all blue people. You know, I don't, I, it, you would you, not every race and not every culture is going to have the mixing of different skin tones that we have here in America or in Britain or wherever. And so it doesn't bug me that, that they, you know, look different. What's, what's, the real problem is not not simply that they're black people, but they're black people at the center of a terrible, a terrible episode. <laughs> it's the one where you shall have no Lieutenant Yar and no vaccine. And it's just a terrible, terrible episode that also is playing out Gene Roddenberry's women fighting women sexual fantasies. And it 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 comes across as if it's a racist statement, but I don't think it had to be. It's just that if you combine all black culture with terrible, ridiculous culture in a terrible episode, it comes across very negatively. I thought uh, you were going to say Angel One, it reminded you of, because that was well, the one with the matriarchal society. Yeah. That's the matriarchal society, yeah, and that's yeah. also a terrible episode. Yeah. But <laughs> it's it's not that it's a matriarchal society that bugs me. It's the fact it's a terrible episode. Right. I also point out that Code of Honor was remade by the same writer as Emancipation on, on Stargate. A, Stargate and is just as awful. Uh, going back to the production of this episode, especially of the animation, they did have more than telesnaps because in 2011, mm-hmm. the third episode was recovered completely. That's true. So yeah. you can see, and actually you can go go online if you don't have the DVDs, you can go online and you can see the um, 
the original episode and what the sets looked like originally. And, and let's just say the, 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 uh, real, uh, chip didn't look quite as impressive in the original. Cause it basically <laughs> looked like a bunch of, uh, plastic sheets hung from like tent poles. But, um, but no, they did an incredible job with the animation on this. And, and it really does look good. Very colorful, uh, very interesting things that they could do with it. Um, you know, and, and, and admittedly, I know there's there. And, and by the way, one thing I, I was going to m- mention too, is that part of the team that worked on this was big finish. They have a creative wing that works on stuff like animation, as well as their audio dramas that we know them for. So uh, that, that was kind of, kind of an interesting connection to, um, and, and going to, again, to the, the, the culture of the, the, uh, the Dravins that, you know, that's, uh, of course, you know, there's plenty of, of, uh, of, of stories about, you know, population control and things like that. And, and I agree. That's a very interesting take on that, where instead of the women being the one controlled, we can think of, uh, some Asian cultures where boys are more highly prized. And so there are things like gender selection. And stuff like that in their cultures against girls um, to kind of flip that on that on the head is kind of an interesting way to look at. I don't know if that was in Verity, Lam- Verity Lambert's mind at the time, because I don't know if that was quite as well known in the West at that time. Could be. Yeah. We should but, be clear by gender selection. We're referring to they abort female unborn. Children. I was trying to be a little more delicate about it, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, that is exactly what happens. Um they, but they, uh, I don't know if that was in her mindset at the time, but it is something that's a good, if will, message for even today, where that is a, a real concern in, in several cultures, uh, that, that girls are, are aborted just because they're girls. And now they're having population issues of the opposite way. They're starting to lose population because they don't have the, they don't have enough of, uh, pairs to, uh, increase the population. This is particularly an issue in China where they had a one-child policy and in a culture that disfavors females, if you're going to have one child, you want it to be a boy, so they would abort any girls. And mm-hmm. it it has – the one-child policy itself is stupid and they're reaping the price of that now. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Zion, among others, has some really good videos explaining the Chinese demographic crisis and how it's civilization ending in terms of where China is going to be in just a few years. It's not going to be the same China. They're, they're rapidly falling from their status as a world power. Um, but it's, but it's especially problematic if you have a one child policy and you've got a society that's going to then imbalance the ratio of the genders as a result of that policy. So as far as my first impression goes, you know, uh, having not seen this before. so my, Oh, my yeah. First... What did you think of it, Dom? <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, I thought it was too long. Uh, I thought it was, a, it was a decent story and it had a classic sci-fi, you know, uh, theme to it, which was, uh, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. You know, the, you had the attractive Dar- uh, uh, Dravins who were uh, very aggressive and warlike and merciless and lacking in uh, ideas of even love or charity, you know, charity or anything like that. And then you had the Rills who were, you know, ugly and scary and yet were peaceful to a fault <laughs> to the self-sacrificing level uh, and willing to get, extend the benefit of the doubt over and over and over again to the Dravins who only gave them back, you know, pain and aggression. And so that's a classic sci-fi sort of turn it on, you know, turn the 
the your expectations on their head. I like that, uh, but like a lot of the classic Who, it was just went on too long. They had four four uh, episodes to fill, and they filled them. And when it could have really been, you know, a two episode uh, story, maybe three. So, um, yeah, there was like like I think one of you mentioned, or both of you, there was a lot of running back and forth, and going, you mm-hmm. know, here, going here, going there, going here, going there, and uh, that just seemed a little unnecessary. But you know, it's of the time. It's it's the uh, it's the very typical of the time. Um, I I didn't. It didn't bother me as much. Th- in this story as it does in some. Yeah. I, I, it seemed like there was more purposefulness to why they're going to these different places and interacting with them. They're not, they, what they, what we didn't have is running of just f- fleeing from one location to another. Right. It was, there was a purpose. It's like, okay, we're going to go here now to do this thing. And they would, they would do it. So I thought that was a little uh, better. I also liked, uh, you know, uh, as you said, Dom, the rills and how they're like reasonable to a fault. I like just how reasonable they were in their dialogue, you know, mm-hmm. because Vicky or Steven or the doctor would challenge them on some point and they would, they would be like, you know, like, why would you help the, the Dravins? Like, well, why shouldn't we? Mm-hmm. And they were just, they were just eminently reasonable. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, I liked Vicky in this. I mean, she was uh, capable and mm-hmm. she wasn't uh, like Susan and uh, Victoria, who comes later, I know, um, are often sort of damsel in distress, uh, mm-hmm. whereas Barbara very often felt, you know, in control and, you know, uh, had her own agency. And I think Vicky feels the same way. Even mm-hmm. though she's young, she felt like like she was an equal member of this of this trio of the doctors and Steven and her. So I really liked her character in this. I thought, I thought it was good. And she, she would stand up for herself at times. I mean, there was a few screechy, you know, <laughs> ah, you know, scary real sort of moments, but nothing mm-hmm. unexpected. And she gets to name the Chumblies, which yeah. the rules accept. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, the rules are eminently reasonable. Oh, you call them Chumblies. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, it's, it's, and, and we're not talking about the, the, the guy from uh, Pawn Star. <laughs> yeah, Chumbly on Pawn Stars, right? That's what I was trying to remember. I was thinking of like uh, Winnie the Pooh. I've got Rumblies and my Chumblies. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we mentioned that the uh, it's this was one of the earliest episodes that was or stories that was missing many episodes and all of them until mm-hmm. 2011, as you mentioned. Um, the animated version was released in 2021, so it's relatively new uh, yeah. animation. Uh, this is. This story is the first story of the third season. So this is where really, you know, kind of getting in and where this is the, this, the first doctor's last season. We're at the, right. Is that the last? Kind of in the middle of it, isn't it? That he. Yeah. Right. So I wonder if Jimmy, you mentioned that they were, you know, they were looking at maybe fire and heart. And I wonder if that had a cause of that. It could have been easily one of the things that led to that conclusion because they, were his relationship with the producers was becoming increasingly tense and they were looking to write him out and try to figure how do we save mm-hmm. the show at the same time, which led to the casting of Patrick yeah. Troughton in the first regeneration. There are a couple of near misses. There's an upcoming episode called or storyline called the celestial toy maker where the celestial toy maker basically vanishes the first doctor for an episode and they seriously thought about when he unvanishes, he's a different guy. 
Mm. Uh, so they almost recast him in that story, but they kept him around for a little longer until the tenth planet. Interesting, yeah. And that that kind of explains why when you know, of course, he was uh, William Hartnell was having health issues that was affecting his ability to to act, and um, and so when they finally did get to the point that they decided to regenerate, that it kind of explains why it's kind of like, oh wait, please don't don't go, you know, sarcastic. <laughs> uh, Right. You know, we'll be, we'll, 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 we'll write you out nicely and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. Yeah. Yes. You know, <laughs> they don't make him disappear off screen. Uh, <clears throat> six doctor. <laughs> so, mm. uh, so they, so the story itself, this is, they end up on this planet in galaxy four, which uh, I'm not sure well, how many there are. <laughs> no, they, they, the, I don't know that it's in galaxy four. The Dravans say we're from the planet Drava in Galaxy 4. Oh, okay. And originally, so none of the, in this period of the show, the episodes have individual titles. So like mm-hmm. episode three is called The Airlock and episode one is called 400 Dawns. And there is no episode titled Galaxy 4. That's a title applied to the storyline in hindsight and and it the only reference to galaxy four is the dravans say that's where they're from so it's weird that that was chosen uh, presumably by the bbc at a later point to represent the this set of this story um so they and and of course a lot of times what they would do is they take these stories and novelize them and maybe Mm -hmm. that was whoever Whoever yes. was the script, the the writer, the writer or the editor of the novel is the one that chose that title, and it just kind of stuck with the story. Right, Doctor Who in the Galaxy Four or whatever they they called it. Yep. Yeah, the, uh, the this planet, you know, is, is interesting. You know, the Doctor says a planet perfectly conducive to life, but without any. You know, except uh, and, there are plants in the view screen <laughs> that you can see. Yeah. It's like those are alive. Yeah, so maybe he means higher life. You know, uh, you know, animal uh, life, animal, right? That's yeah. Uh, Vicky actually goes up and smells the flowers. <laughs> but it's, it, have you learned nothing yet? Because <laughs> <laughs> that was my first impression: was this isn't suspicious to any of you? This seems suspicious to me. Uh, so we, yeah, and, and Jimmy, I, I like how you uh, noticed that the uh, Chumblies are uh, are basically Roombas. Mm-hmm, uh, they're just mm-hmm. like blindly nosing around, bumping into things because they don't have uh, 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 visual receptors of any co- sort, cameras. They apparently have infrared ones, so they've got like FLIR systems, and you'd think, why don't you use that to navigate? <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, yeah cuz they 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 navigate by sound, I think they say early. Mm-hmm. Although later on they kind of sound move and a- touch. Yeah, they yeah. kind of move away from that a bit, but um yeah, at one point Vicky and the doctor kind of follow one of these in a quote-unquote blind spot, like they just sneak behind it as mm-hmm. they follow it to wherever it's going. Uh they do they do get uh rescued from the machines, <clears throat> quote-unquote rescued because Later on, we learned they probably they actually weren't in danger from them, but they get rescued by uh, by one of the Dravins and who acts very robotic herself, as we mentioned. Like they, mm-hmm. they are very robotic and um, not very human. disciplined. Yeah, yeah. They incidentally, one thing that I noticed about this is. Um, so at this point in the show's history, both of the Doctor's companions are from the future because mm-hmm. Steven's from the future. Vicky's from even a little further in the future than Steven is. I mean, Steven was a spaceship pilot. 
and the doctor is from a technologically advanced, even more technologically advanced civilization. So all three of our protagonists are from technologically advanced civilizations that are in advance of the 20th century. And so we didn't have lots of exposition explaining, mm-hmm. oh, this is a robot and blah, blah, blah. Right. And this is a spaceship and, and so forth. Um, in fact, they're all three of them are like commenting on how rickety the Draven mm-hmm. spaceship looks like and how it's made from inferior materials and stuff. And I thought that was such an interesting dynamic of having three future-oriented characters with nobody from the past, like Jamie or Victoria, and nobody from 21st century London. It's <laughs> like, thank you. This is such a refreshing change. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, they, uh, when they, when they meet with the Dravins and MAGA and which I, you know, as a 21st century American, uh, the name MAGA raises all sorts of interesting new connotations, but, uh, she does act like sort of a, a dictatorial figure. Um, the doctor makes a good point that the, yeah, not uh, based on stereotypes. Sorry, not yes, not stereotype. actual commenting on any current American yeah. situation. And I'm not making any political commentary. <laughs> it was spelled differently, so yeah. Okay, I didn't. Yeah, I was yeah, listening. M A A G A. Gotcha. So uh, it's just interesting how stuff produced a long time ago can have new connotations based on completely unrelated things, just as mm-hmm. time has changed. The uh, the doctor makes a good point that they have no reason to trust the Dravins over anyone else, except that Stephen thinks that they're attractive. You know, so mm-hmm. it's kind of this like he's making that point that don't just trust somebody because they look attractive or interesting or friendly or whatever when you're out here in the you know the great wild of the universe and all of space and time you got to go deeper you got to look deeper and i think the doctor the doctor the first doctor sometimes can be a little bit bumbling but in this one i felt like he was a little bit more apart from almost killing all the rails <laughs> with the uh, tampering with the machine he was a little bit more on the ball than we've seen him at other points which i think is interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. He's he's clearly analytical. He's not automatically trusting or distrusting of anybody, either yeah. the Rills or the Dravins. He's very yeah. neutral. Well, and it, it's funny at the beginning of the episode, he talks about how they're on a scientific expedition that they're traveling around in the TARDIS, not because the TARDIS is just taking where the TARDIS wants to take them, but because they're on a <laughs> scientific expedition to you know, and that they're scientists, and they bring that up several times. They're scientists that in this, which is not really. Stuff we hear from the doctor very often, at least at this point, that he's there as a scientist. There's also an interesting line in, uh, because it's established in An Unearthly Child in the very first episode that Susan came up with the name TARDIS based on time and relative dimension in space. And so that would sound like the doctor is an inventor who came up with this ship and then his granddaughter named it and in this episode there is line where uh steven and the doctor are going back to the tardis and at this point they don't realize that chumblies are not a threat because they haven't talked to the rills yet and there's been a chumbly you know trying to get into the tardis previously and the doctor is like oh don't worry about it steven it's not going to be able to get in And they get there, and it has not gotten in. And the doctor says, 
I certainly excelled myself with that force barrier around the mm-hmm. TARDIS, making it sound like, again, he invented the TARDIS. And for, that is later disconfirmed. You can still reconcile it. You know, you can still say, oh, he was the one that erected the force barrier around this TARDIS. But um, it's an interesting artifact of the writing of the show based on the initial assumptions that the Doctor was like an inventor or something. Yeah, I lo- it's interesting to me how they use the word scientist in, in this era, uh, mm-hmm. of, you know, on Doctor Who, because it almost like explorer would be the more like the scientist is, is this generic cover term that you know covers all kinds of science. Like it kind of almost goes back to the days of the natural philosopher where, mm-hmm. you know, you could be a, a scientist of everything. And that's kind of how the doctor is in these early days. He's a scientist of everything. And the term was still new. Um, the For centuries, what we today would call a scientist was called a natural philosopher. That's why, that's why physicists get PhDs, doctorates of philosophy. Um, and science was just called natural philosophy. It wasn't until the mid to late 19th century that the term scientist was really applied in the modern sense of this is a person who specializes in the natural sciences. And so the term was still new. It was less you know, than 100 years old. And, of course, in the mid-20th century, science was the big thing. So we are scientists. And mm. science would save us all and solve yeah. all problems. <laughs> kind of interesting that the, in, the doctor you know, being shown as, as creating the TARDIS, or at least implying that, that he, he's, he's created parts of the TARDIS, that actually gets used in the Peter Cushing movies, that he actually yes. is the creator of the TARDIS. Where he, Peter he's a Cushing, human being who created the TARDIS. Instead of, uh, you know, from Alien Rates, of course, as we know later on in Doctor Who and all yeah. that. Yeah, they um, – where Peter Cushing does – is portrayed as a, an inventor who has come yep. up with the TARDIS. And they don't actually say he's a human. A lot of people assume that because he's living on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've kind of – Stephen Moffat had a retcon to – as of those films are actual films in the Doctor Who universe with Peter yeah. Cushing playing the Doctor. I don't buy that. It's the Doctor in another timeline. There you go. And he's he's just, I don't know, at most under influence of a chameleon watch or something. <laughs> but the science the Doctor has is not particularly great in mm-hmm. this episode. He says that when uh, they, they're a little unclear, to my mind, on why the planet is going to explode. It seems to have to do with its orbit with respect to the suns or something, maybe. But they're not really clear about that. He is able to calculate more precisely than the rills exactly when it's going to explode, and it's closer than what the rills think. The rills think they've got 14 days or 14 dawns. The doctor mm-hmm. says it's really only going to be two um, but then he says it's going to explode into hydrogen gas. Not unless every atom on the planet experiences nuclear fission. No, it's not. It might, ex- it might break up or explode, but that's not going to turn the atoms into hydrogen. Right. Release hydrogen gas, maybe? At best, at best. Like, there's like a big pocket of hydrogen gas well, and, in it somewhere. But yeah. And then in the last scene where the planet's breaking up, we see lava bubbling up and the dramas yes. fall into it. And that's so like, right. well, I don't think so. <laughs> so, uh, 
the when the the doctor at some point one point um they've they've been captured by the the dravins they're in their ship they're being uh interrogated maga threatens to kill vicky for the truth because the doctor's withholding some knowledge from her mm-hmm. and i'm like i was watching this going he could say anything like she has no way to judge the veracity of whatever he says at this point how would she know like i forget exactly what it was she was something to do with the rills and it's like he could say anything at this point it's you know? it's the, it's how long it's going to be before the planet blows up okay that's what it was yeah, yeah. and it's like <laughs> I, it's just that it's sort of typical writing of, of this sort of thing. Like, just like when you, like interrogations in TV shows, like either they're, mm-hmm. they're torturing or holding someone. And then, but in, so often there's no way to verify the veracity of the, of the knowledge that you're extracting. And therefore it's a kind of a completely useless tech tactic. I just thought it was kind of funny to see it here in this one. Um, so the MAGA, there's a scene where we, we talked about the, the, the Rills self-sacrifice. There is a scene at one point where Maga and the Darvin Dravins are marveling that humans, the doctor and, and Vicky and, uh, and Steven will help one another and even die for one another. And that they, they have no understanding or knowledge of that in their, in their species in their culture and society, which is kind of interesting. And it was made me think, can a society exist without, any self-sacrifice or love or help or aid the design, you know, the, that selfless help for other people could, can that even exist? Well, it can. Um, I mean, you could have a society in principle, it's not a human society, not a developed one, but human societies exist along a spectrum where there can be a shift in the amount of altruism in the society but you can imagine a society that is shifted way towards self-interest and so it's like i'll cooperate with you because it's in my self-interest to do so but that's all i'm doing and so you could have a society that's very much every man for himself we are cooperating but it's purely out of self-interest there's Mm -hmm. there's no real altruism here and and frankly a lot of dictator dictator type governments basically operate on that is yes i'm going to work with the dictator because i want to live not because i care about him in most cases or want to you know advance his career no it's i want to survive i don't want to be taken out and face a firing squad Mm -hmm. right right or interpersonally even just i'm not going to help other people just out of the goodness of my heart but yeah. Only because it helps me survive or advance or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, being a psychopath, lack of empathy. Mm-hmm. Right. There is an interesting moment in kind of later in the series where Maga is humanized a bit because she's alone with her juniors. And there are three juniors. They don't even have names. They're just Dravins one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. And they those are their designations. This is like seven of nine. Yeah, they one of them makes a comment. Oh, we could do this like three did. Yeah, and there originally was a fourth who we get mm-hmm. to see only in a flashback. Um, four was wounded, and so Maga killed her, but then lied to one, two, and three, telling them that it was the Rills that killed yeah. her. Apparently, in their culture, and I think this is a potential writing stumble. 
apparently in their culture, it's policy to kill the wounded. Mm-hmm. So then why would she lie about the Rills doing it? You know, you could have just said, oh, yeah, she was wounded. I killed her. But there was this fourth. But there, then there's this moment later on where Maga is philosophical and she's reflecting on her situation and how the leaders of her planet told her to go out and conquer space. And if you're going to conquer space, you're going to need soldiers. So we're sending these four soldiers with you. But the soldiers are bred for limited intelligence and they, they don't adapt well to change. And I don't, and, and, and she's sensing the, the inadequacy of what she's been tasked to do and the staff that she's been given to do it with. She wants people who are able to think more creatively. And I don't know exactly what she wants, whether she wants farmers or scientists or what, but she's sensing that the uh, the soldiers she's been given are not really what she needs to go out and conquer space and establish a colony and things like that. And it's interesting. It's nice to see her reflecting critically on her own society and its leadership and acknowledging that they don't always make the best decisions and she's kind of stuck with the results. Yeah. You know, another interesting aspect of, of, of her was also the, the multiple times when she was given an option to survive, just compromise, mm-hmm. just accept the rills as you know, their hand of, of, of friendship or except, or even the doctor or could have tentacle, offered tentacle of friendship as it may be. <laughs> as yeah. it may be. Or the, even the doctor could have invited them onto the TARDIS and taken them away. But just, just the obstinacy, the inability that the, or the, just the lack of any type of flexibility in saying, Hey, maybe we should do something different. Maybe we should go with them and survive. But no, it was always the only way to survive is to conquer the others. The only way I can, succeed as if someone else is defeated and in the end that's you know the what leaves them dead in in space Mm -hmm. on this planet um i i thought that's something they could have tied up a little bit better than they did because at the end of episode four the doctor has jump-started the real ship and the real ship takes off and there's there's this other structure that the rills have built i guess adjacent to their spaceship Mm-hmm. that they leave behind. And so the doctor, so now that the rills are gone, the doctor, Vicky and Steven run back to the TARDIS. The Dravins are pursuing them and they get into the TARDIS. Um, Steven opens the door momentarily to throw out the real jumper cable mm-hmm. so that the door will close properly. And they sh- he shuts the door on them and they dematerialize. And it's like, yep. there is no effort made to save the rills and i was thinking this would not happen in modern who without some additional setup um and it they could have addressed it a number of ways the doctor could have made a last minute offer and even saved them or the doctor could have made a last minute offer and the rills uh, the dravins rejected it or you know, indicated they wouldn't go along with the doctor's plan. And so he says, sorry, I'm, I'm out of here then. At least I thought they could have had a, a, a couple of lines of dialogue of discussion, like 
Stephen or Vicky could say, Doctor, why don't we take them in the TARDIS with us? And he says, my child, look at what they just tried to do to the Rills. They offered them free passage on their starship, and their ideology determined they could not accept help. They have to try to take over what type of whatever type of ship they're going to do. It would not be safe. We're outnumbered, and they have weapons. It would not be safe for us to bring them aboard the TARDIS. Yeah, it seemed it seemed cold. <laughs> it seemed really cold. Yeah, yeah that that's, that's sort of and, and earlier in the um, in the in in the story, there's a moment where Maga is having a little fantasy about watching. I mean, she's it's just Draven's presence. She's not doing this in mm-hmm. front of the humans or the rills. But she's having a little fantasy about we're going to get back up into space in the real spaceship and. We're going to look on the planet and watch it explode. It's going to be a brilliant white light, and 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 the humans and the rills will be down on the planet dying. And and the um, one of the underlings makes a comment indicating her limited intelligence, and Maga says, "Ah, but at least I have the intelligence to envision it. Just imagine there being being there as the planet is shuddering yeah. and dying, and you're trapped." and so forth. And then we get to watch Maga in that situation mm-hmm. where after the TARDIS takes off, she and her aide is still, are still down on the surface. The ground is developing cracks. It's splitting open. Lava is bubbling up. And, and we get to watch Maga be in the exact situation she mm-hmm. fantasized about. Yep. Yep. Well, it's interesting that there's, there is one point when I think it was Stephen was trying to reason with one of the Draven soldiers. And she was actually showing, you know, logical thought process and all this stuff. And Maga's the one who supposedly thinks, but a lot of times doesn't show the logical thought process. Just, I must kill the enemy. You are my enemy. Therefore, I must kill you. Or I can use you to, you know, like Steven or Vicky to get what I want. And so you will stay here with me and I will kill you if you try to escape, you know, that there really isn't a logical, you know, okay, maybe these people are right. Maybe the the reals are actually peaceful and can get us home, but they're different than us. And so I can't use any other kind of thought process like that. As if the Draven soldiers maybe weren't as dumb as we were led to believe and that they were made to believe. Yeah, yeah, true. So any uh, final notes or thoughts on this episode, Father Corey? Uh, Nothing here. Jimmy? I thought Vicky showed remarkable empathy for a Roomba vacuum cleaner. (laughs) Because... At at the end, the the rills say we're going to send a chumbly with you to take you back to the TARDIS and protect you on the way there, and then the 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 chumbly will shut itself down and it'll perish with the planet. and And Vicky is like, oh! <laughs> and <laughs> it will be completely painless. Don't worry. And like, <laughs> Vicky, you're from the future. This is a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> right. Right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> And not nearly as much empathy for the Dravins, I noticed. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. So, uh, all right, great. Well, that will do it for this discussion. We would like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the Secrets of Doctor Who, including uh, a number of patrons who I I didn't uh, list here. But I wanted to take a moment to thank them for their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give. 
which makes it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who in all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. So what did you think of Galaxy 4, this first Doctor story? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Send an email to Who at sqpn.com. Visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can watch the Secrets of Doctor Who on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia and leave a comment there. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 12th Doctor story, Under the Lake. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Don. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, it's got a sort of chumbly movement. <laughs>